Hello, uh, this is Larry Bernstein. Welcome to What Happens Next, Week 12. On today's call, we're going to hear about race, age, and violence and its relationship with COVID from Kate Cagney. Barry Eichengreen will discuss the process for countries to return to a more normal debt-to-GDP ratio. Brian Kaplan will give us a different way to think about poverty. Jonathan Haidt will explore why good people can disagree about opening up the economy and ending the quarantine. John Burge will recommend the use of targeted quarantines if there is a spike in COVID cases. John James will discuss how the pandemic and the riots will impact the U.S. Senate race in the state of Michigan. Ted Conover will talk about how his experience as a prison guard in Sing Sing can illuminate what happened in Minneapolis. Barry Latzer will help us distinguish between rioters and protesters. Jonathan Bean will discuss how the 1960s riots hurt small businesses the most. And Michael Tallon will tell us why we loved the documentary, The Last Dance. One month ago, I reviewed the employment data released from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I'm going to do so again because the numbers that were released on Friday were really rather remarkable. Non-farm payrolls from the establishment survey rose by 2.5 million in May and by 3.8 million in the household survey. These numbers are surprising because most economists expected very substantial job losses. The equity market rallied 3% immediately on the jobs announcement. There's some really interesting nuggets in the details of that report. First, construction had lost about 1 million jobs in April and gained back 500,000 in May. So construction is already halfway back to its full employment in just a single month. Manufacturing dropped by 1.3 million jobs in April and gained back over 200,000, or just a little less than a 20% recovery. The retail trade employment fell by 2.2 million people in April and rebounded nearly 400,000. What's really interesting are the subgroups like clothing stores, which had employment cut by 60% in the month of April and are still less than half. I suspect that clothing stores are viewed as non-essential and are closed, and that these 650,000 unemployed workers will likely return to work as soon as these stores are opened up. Healthcare workers are still down nearly 2 million people, but these employees will likely be rehired when doctors and dentists' offices reopen. Leisure and hospitality employment fell by half in April, or 7.6 million jobs, but this month 1.9 million got rehired. Needless to say, this will take time to reopen casinos, hotels, and amusement parks. My own observation from the data is that these employment numbers are surprisingly strong and point to a more rapid recovery than I would have expected. I sent a survey monkey out to our listeners last night, and I received a few hundred responses. Here were the surprises to the survey. One, there was a wave of optimism about treatments, vaccines, death rates, and the spread of the virus. And there were very few people who had gotten more pessimistic in the last month about the COVID virus. Second, over half of you are already back at work or going back to work in the next couple of days. Third, a third, one-third of you expect there to be gatherings of more than 50 people in the next quarter. Nearly half of you are doing double dates or expect to do so in the very near future. A supermajority expect quarantines to be limited to the elderly very soon. Nearly 70% of you think there will be another stimulus bill. Yet 80% expect a second wave of COVID. Nearly half of the respondents expect an explosion of COVID cases, and a third believe that we will get back to the death rate seen at the worst in New York. Biden's probability of winning the election has fluctuated wildly in my surveys. 
Biden was expected to win in 60% of the cases in week one, but fell to 40% in week two, and today he's at 72% among you respondents. Meanwhile, the betting markets have Biden winning in the low 50s. Nearly 40% of you expect Kamala Harris to be the VP choice, and the other major candidates are clustered at only 10% or less. More than half the respondents think it will take more than two years for the economy to recover. In week two, I was among only 8% of you who thought there would be a breakdown in the social order with widespread looting. Today, 56% think there will be an escalation from here in the breakdown of social order, with a third thinking this will mean robberies of homes. Our surveyors are pretty evenly split whether the escalating riots will mean a substantial increase in the National Guard presence or direct U.S. military intervention, but half is still a lot. Only 6% are depressed by the lockdown, and three-quarters say they could make it indefinitely in quarantine. There is nearly universal use of masks outside in my survey, and a quarter expect to use masks at work when people are around, and a similar amount expect to physically move their desks to distance from others. Only 42% of you think there will be live classes in, university cl- in universities this fall. 90% of you said you will get vaccinated if the FDA approves a vaccine. A supermajority support their local governors and disapproves of Trump's handling of COVID. The Chatham House rules apply for this call. We do this because we want the speakers to be as open as possible so we can learn more without putting the speaker at risk. The format of this call will be the same as the previous 11 weeks. Each speaker will be given only six minutes. At the five minutes point, I may throw in a question or two and then roll off to the next speaker. I think the format is both fun and incredibly informative. After all the speakers have spoken, in about an hour, there'll be a general question, a question and answer period. This call is being recorded. Let's get started with our first speaker. Our first speaker is Kate Cagney. She is professor of sociology at the University of Chicago and director of Population Research Center, NORC. Kate, please go ahead. Thank you, Larry. And I'm glad you started with some examples from social surveys and their findings because I'm going to share uh, two social surveys and their results with you to motivate a conversation about race, ethnicity, age, and COVID. I'll highlight two University of Chicago social science projects that I think are bearing on questions of social isolation and social integration for older adults and how they intersect with race and social class. So one's national, one's local, one highlights the role of social relationships while the other explores the role of space. And I think both have implications for COVID. The first is called the National Social Life Health and Aging Project. It's a longitudinal population-based study. It's aimed at understanding the well-being of about 3,000 older Americans who are community dwellers it examines the interactions among physical health, social connectedness, and relationship quality. So what have we learned from this social service that has implications for COVID? Um, we found that 30% of those respondents report that they're lonely, at least some of the time. That's why I was particularly interested in your results, Larry. And about 8% report that they're severely lonely. So not necessarily depression, but really this felt loneliness. My colleagues suggest that social networks are really an answer. They're strongly intertwined with anxiety and depression, suggesting that public health initiatives could reduce isolation by facilitating social network integration and community participation. So, of course, that recommendation is much harder right now. We've seen lots of creative ways, of course, to maintain contact, but are they sustainable? And I think this pandemic differs from a natural disaster in that we can't have direct contact. And this is longer in duration than other events, such as a heat wave. And I believe Eric Kleinenberg spoke with the group a week or so ago. Um, What this requires is stamina, consistency, and it may also require use of technology to facilitate some face-to-face exchanges, even at a distance. And I'll get back to that point. 
The second project is called the Chicago Health and Activity Space in Real-Time Study. It examines the spaces about 450 older adults in 10 Chicago neighborhoods inhabit when they go about their routine activities. This is our ongoing NIH research effort. It's aimed at understanding these activity spaces or what would be your own personal circumference of turf in the lives of older adults. The work is meant to extend research on neighborhoods. This is suggested by turn-of-the-century work in the Chicago School of Sociology, which I could talk about a bit more later if people are interested. Um, and this is assesses exposure space throughout the day rather than merely one's home environment. So much of the work on neighborhood characteristics and the social environment assigns um, all of the factors from your census tract to you. But really, do you think that tells us a lot about you? And is it accurate in terms of what you have been exposed to during the day or where you spent time? We may not even know the boundaries of our census tracts. So this project is novel because we actually uh, follow our respondents' movements via GPS on phones, and we use ecological momentary assessment that's developed by Chicksamahai, um, a psychologist. They're brief surveys on their phones, and they ask about mood and uh, opinion, and they ask about those in real time, factors such as loneliness. We also geocode those data. So fortuitously, our last field period was in November, and we've just been funded by NSF to mail people phones and conduct that same GPS tracking right now. So um, we'll also follow those respondents in the aftermath of the pandemic. So we you know, have space before, during, and after for an older, more vulnerable urban population that varies by race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status. And I want to turn to that now. What do we know about race and COVID? So nationally, African-American deaths from COVID are nearly twice those that we would expect based on their share of the population. In four states, that rate is three or more times higher. In Michigan, African-Americans make up 14% of the population, but account for 41% of coronavirus deaths. And in my home state of Illinois, African-Americans make up 14% of the population, but account for 33% of those deaths. Also for Latinos, the rates are two times higher in 30 states and over four times higher in eight states. For example, in Virginia, 49% of all cases come from the Latino community, which really only makes up 10% of the population. And important to note for our conversation here is that older people have died at much greater numbers than those who are younger. 80% of the known fatalities were at least 65. So I would say that media reports often focus on individual level factors, such as compromised health due to obesity or diabetes, but I would argue that it is the structural or community level factors that seem to matter. Adults with lower incomes, racial and ethnic minorities, and those in economically disadvantaged neighborhoods may exhibit routine patterns of exposure to more crowded, higher risk locations than their more advantaged counterparts. This is likely due to differences in social environments, activities, and levels of social integration. This leads to disparities and the tendency to engage in leisure activities in free public spaces, maybe malls or parks, rely on crowded discount shopping destinations, Walmart comes to mind, in the absence of neighborhood grocery stores or delivery. These are populations that depend much more on public transit, which can be crowded, and who may continue working beyond the typical retirement age in face-to-face -face service sector jobs. So for those of you familiar with Chicago, you know that the city is segregated. We find in our own work, for instance, that our white respondents travel north for routine activities and our African-American respondents travel south. So it appears that residents are bypassing neighborhoods with more amenities to end up in neighborhoods with fewer, but neighborhoods where the racial composition is similar to their own. 
So our results suggest that our daily interactions are as segregated as the places where we sleep at night. And this is likely exacerbating those racial differences in risk for COVID that I outlined earlier. And relating that to our experience in the last two weeks, and Larry, you brought this up, uh, our research suggests that propinquity central, day-to-day interaction, social intermingling builds trust, that trust lends itself towards social solidarity. That means that communities create a reservoir support that can be drawn on when multiple members of our community are in need. And so that can be when people are lonely, as we discussed earlier with the NSHEP results, um, those who may need assistance with groceries or learning new technology. And, you know, I would um, say, too, that those who want to have a forthright conversation about race and policing and the violence that has accompanied it, um, communities that have high levels of trust and connectedness invite those sorts of exchanges. So I'll just close by underscoring the point that those who live and who died from COVID-19 is largely about location, where we rest in the SES distribution, and how that relates to the places we live in and traverse. Thanks, Thank Larry. You, You're welcome. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Barry Eichengreen. Uh, Barry has joined as a speaker at our book club numerous times. As a matter of fact, I think he may be one of our top uh, top picks. Um, he is also the George Party and Helen Party Professor of Economics and Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. Barry, please go ahead. Thanks, Larry. Um, I'm going to talk about federal government debt held by the public, uh, as opposed to uh, debt held by agencies like the Federal Reserve, because it's debt held by the public uh, that indicates the extent to which federal borrowing affects the availability of private funds to other borrowers. So the U.S. entered the crisis with debt held by the public of 80% of GDP, which is not atypical for a high-income country. It was not an especially pressing problem because the growth rate of the U.S. economy was higher than the interest rate on the debt. This meant that if we ran a balanced budget, we would bring the debt burden down steadily because we were growing the denominator of the debt-to-GDP ratio faster than the numerator, it meant that we could run reasonable budget deficits and still bring the debt ratio down. It meant that we could run the unreasonable deficits that the Congressional Budget Office projected would obtain under current law for maybe another decade before the debt became a serious worry. The coronavirus changes everything, as we say, and it certainly changes this. It's led to massive increases in federal government spending through the CARES Act and so forth. Tax revenues will decline, and the denominator of the debt-to-GDP ratio has collapsed for the moment. To be clear, I'm very strongly of the view that this increased federal spending is desirable, but there are consequences. What consequences exactly, we don't know because we don't know whether there will be more fiscal action. We don't know when or how quickly GDP will recover. The CBO projects, uh, based on assuming what I think is a rather optimistic V-shaped recovery, that federal debt held by the public will be 20 percentage points higher at the end of this year and 26 percentage points higher at the end of 2021. There's no magic number or threshold where debt becomes a problem. Uh, The economists on the line will know the literature I'm talking about. Still, these levels are worrisome. Fortunately, I'm not sure that's the right word. We've been here before. Federal 
debt held by the public was 112% of GDP in 1945 as a result of World War II spending. Other countries have been here before. UK government debt was 242% of GDP. You heard that right after World War II. And both the US and the UK successfully brought down their debt to GDP ratios over time. Maybe we can draw some lessons from their experience. There are three ways short of an Argentine-style default in which governments can bring down the debt ratio. First, they can run primary budget surpluses, uh, uh, budget surpluses net of interest payments once things return to normal. Second, they can keep interest rates low. And third, they can grow the denominator of the debt-to-GDP ratio. To overgeneralize a little bit, I would argue that the only countries that have succeeded in bringing down very high debt ratios over time are those uh, that succeeded in doing all three things at once. Rely only on austerity, as in Greece, and you risk a, a political explosion. Rely only on low interest rates, and you risk capital flight. If you fail to grow the economy, all is for naught. Uh, the U.S. and the U.K. are examples of countries that did all three with ver various degrees of success after World War II. So what are U.S. prospects now? I'm strongly of the view that interest rates will remain low for long. Uh, private spending will be subdued. There will be more precautionary saving by everyone who has been reminded that they need more money in the bank. If the Treasury is smart, it will lengthen the maturity of the debt to lock in these low interest rates. I'm less confident uh, about our ability to run budget surpluses because budget deficits are the hallmark of polarized societies. That's another lesson of history. There will be new demands for federal spending post-crisis. The question is whether there will also be new taxes. Americans pay fewer taxes than the residents of virtually any other civilized country. The question is whether if we look more like Europe on the spending side, we will also come to look more like Europe on the tax side. But to conclude, everything turns in the end on whether we can grow the denominator of the debt to GDP ratio like before. I have my doubts. That's the $25 trillion question. Okay. Thank you, Barry. Um, our next speaker is Brian Kaplan. He is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He's also the author of The Case Against Education. Um, Brian Kaplan, please go ahead. Yeah, thanks a lot, Larry. So I'm Brian Kaplan, and I like to write controversial books. So if there's a topic where other people have already said what I'm going to say, then I usually steer clear of it and try to find ideas that other people don't really want to talk about. Uh, so like Larry said, I'm, um, what my two books ago, I wrote uh, The Case Against Education. My most recent book is called Open Borders. I also have two other books, The Myth, The Rational Voter, and Selfish Reason Have More Kids. And the new book that I'm working on that Larry's letting me talk to you about is called Poverty, Who to Blame? Uh, the starting point for this book is this much maligned but still much used distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor. So it's one where 
almost no one wants to stand up and say that they agree with this idea that sometimes the poor are deserving, sometimes they're undeserving. And yet, if you take a look, you can see that we still use this distinction very regularly for both welfare state and for philanthropy. If you look at the way the welfare state spends money, it's still very focused on helping children, helping the sick, helping mothers of kids. But again, the idea there being is that you've got to help them if you're helping their kids too. And the same thing goes with philanthropy. You'll see what Bill Gates does. He's trying to focus on truly very desperately poor people. So it would be hard to understand why you'd have these priorities if you didn't actually think there was an important distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor. And so a lot of what I want to do in this book is to dust off the distinction and say, actually, even though hardly anyone wants to really defend it, it's really highly defensible. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, so that's to start with. And beginning, you know, so we definitely use this distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor for what I call altruistic triage. When we're trying to figure out we've got a finite set of resources that we can allocate, how are we going to do it? I'm always amazed when people talk about the universal basic income as a good idea. And I, I ask, well, if you were a philanthropist and you had $7 billion, would you give a dollar to every person on earth? Does that sound like a good thing to do? Or would you rather want to prioritize and find where can I do the most good with this money? In particular, who are the people who are really suffering through no fault of their own? So you might want to start with war orphans or refugee camps or something like that. Uh, but what I say in the book, book is that well, you know, altruistic triage is really all well and good and makes a lot of sense. And Again, I think it would be terrible if we stopped using this distinction for altruistic triage and just started spending indiscriminately without really thinking about who should be first in line because there are always finite resources. Uh, but then what I really want to do in the book is to talk a lot about the many policies that we have that are very important that actually do prevent people from solving their own poverty problem. So, you know, like in one key part of the distinction has always been there are those who are who are capable of solving their own problem and those are those who are not capable of solving their own problem. Whether or not someone can solve their own problem often depends very much on government policy. So the you know the social science part of the book is I want to convince people that there are large, very important policy areas where governments are actively stopping poor people from solving their own poverty problems. And again, which I say it makes a lot more sense to think about getting rid of policies that stop people from helping themselves before you start thinking about redistribution. It's a lot cheaper just to take impediments out of people's way than to go and use redistribution. And then furthermore, it's just a way of seeing, you know, like what extent are people actually capable of taking care of themselves or taking care of themselves or solving their own problems. So one part of the book, I'm going to talk a lot about bad policy, bad economic policy, especially in the third world. Uh, so there's you know very interesting work that's been done on the quality of management internationally. And the big punchline of this work is that in the third world, companies are generally very poorly managed in a very simple common sense way, but with one important exception, which is multinational corporations, which of course get a lot of blame for being bad guys. And yet when you really look at what they're doing in the third world, they are taking first world levels of management quality and they are sharing them with poor countries and they're actually getting the productivity up. Uh, so that's one example. Also, uh, housing regulation is something you want to talk about a lot. Uh, in the last 15 years, there's been a lot of work on it, the, how bad housing regulation is in the first world. So it explains why you have exorbitant housing prices in New York and the Bay Area. But also you can see many poor countries have draconian housing policies. In countries like India, where they have a massive homelessness problem, yet it's very hard to get permission to build housing there. 
Uh, so again, these are all things where people would be able to solve their own problems if government would get out of the way. And these are not small amounts of money we're talking about. These really are trillion-dollar subtraction, uh, subtractive policies. So I'm going to talk a lot about immigration policy and, again, how one of the best ways on earth for people to solve their own poverty problem is to move to a rich country and get a job. And yet this is almost always illegal, especially for low-skilled workers. So my last book, Open Borders, I talk about this. I'm going to have a more thorough exploration of this. And you just do you know, a very big rethinking of how we should think about poverty in the third world and also the idea of to what extent can you blame the first world for third world poverty. But I, what I'm going to say is most of the usual stories don't make sense, but this is a story that makes sense. The story that if someone wants to move from Haiti or Mexico to get a job working in the U.S., there should be a strong presumption in favor of that. And again, just to say, you know, migrants are doing the right thing, right? They're doing the right thing by trying to solve their own problem and then to say that's illegal seems like a very bad thing. And then finally, the most controversial part of the book, which is not going to be a large part, but it's the part that gets everyone upset. This is where I'm just going to talk about irresponsible personal behavior as a cause of poverty, uh, here I'm drawing very heavily on a lot of very left-wing sociology. So sociologists spend a lot of time studying how exactly poverty works and what it's like to be poor. And what's amazing is that even though they have a very strong ideological urge to say that this is all the fault of someone else, but the actual description of irresponsible behavior is very strong. So again, this is far from saying this is the only cause, but it's also one that I think is worth talking about. And just you know, calming down and really thinking about the extent to which there are common sense changes in behavior that the poor could adopt that would help them solve their own problem. Although, of course, you know, step one is to take impediments out of their way so that you can really remove that, what I call the moral uncertainty of that. So anyway, um, I tend to write books slowly. I like to read very thoroughly and broadly when I write. So this book will probably be coming out around 2024. But uh, the title is Poverty, Who to Blame? And I hope I've piqued your interest. Thanks a lot. Bye, Brian. Thank you. I will get back to you in the Q&A. Okay. Um, okay, great. Our next speaker is Jonathan Haidt. He is a professor of ethical leadership at NYU Stern School. He's also the author of The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Jonathan, go ahead. Well, thanks, Larry. Uh, so I'm going to talk about the general question of how this pandemic got so politicized. Um, I'm glad you started with your survey, your survey results, because I've been on these calls from the beginning. And I remember back then, we were much more negative or fearful about the virus. Uh, uh, and, but we were, there was, back then, there was still a lot of hope that this was going to affect us as a country by bringing us together. And there was some early survey research that showed that people gave very high ratings of we're all in this together. Uh, but in April, things really began to come apart, um, especially over whether to continue the lockdowns or whether states needed to be, quote, liberated. I saw a news story about two weeks ago as Texas was reopening. Uh, they showed that some stores had signs on them saying that you cannot come in unless you're wearing a mask. But a few stores had signs on them uh, saying you're not allowed in if you are wearing a mask. What on earth is happening to us? Um, I like to start psychological analyses with a premise that I do not believe, namely that people are perfectly rational and they're simply calculating utility based on the facts as they find them. Uh, then I'll show why that premise is not adequate. So step one, what if people are just being rational? Um, the American political divide, the left-right divide, has been transformed in the last few decades into a cultural and moral divide that is also a geographical divide. <clears throat> Now, I've written about this as a battle between the globalists and the nationalists, 
But the political analyst Michael Lind has an even better name for it in his book, uh, The New Class War. He calls the two sides the hubs versus the heartland. And once you see those labels, you can see that the level of lockdown appropriate for a hub region, which receives travelers from all over the world, is far more than is needed in a heartland county. In fact, the New York Times had an article, I think it was yesterday, it made this point with data. The headline was, a striking disconnect on the virus, economic pain with little illness. And that's true in most of the counties in this country. So that's step one. People on the two sides are just differently situated. Uh, And we should note that the great majority of the journalists and the public health experts who are weighing in on the pandemic have two things in common. Most of them live in a hub and they all have a job they can do from home. So let the lockdowns continue, they say. But that's just step one. Now let's bring in a bunch more steps. Step two, motivated reasoning. So a lot of my own work reported in The Righteous Mind is just an empirical demonstration that David Hume was right uh, in 1739 when he wrote that, quote, reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. Left and right in America start off with different intuitions about business and capitalism, with the right being much more strongly in favor of economic liberty, and the left is more favorable to regulations and also more focused on compassion in its morality and its politics. So when people think about coming out of lockdown, people on the right or people who own small businesses are motivated to find reasons to lift the lockdowns quickly. People on the left are motivated to look for evidence that lockdowns are saving lives and should be continued. Step three, tribalism and team dynamics. So motivated reasoning is really powerful if we're just thinking for ourselves. But when it's our group's interest or our team competing with another team, then motivated reasoning gets much stronger. If you question your team's views, your your team statements, You can be accused of treason, you can be ostracized, you can be socially destroyed. So when the leader of the red team says that the virus is not serious or that it will disappear on its own or that people should liberate their states, uh, then the the lines are drawn and partisan reasoning goes into overdrive. Step four, social media. Social media before 2009 was not bad for democracy. In fact, back then, a lot of us thought, wow, this is going to be the greatest gift to democracy ever. But social media at the beginning was just people saying, look, here's my page. Here are my friends. Here are the bands I like. It's only in 2009 that everything changes. Facebook adds the like button and Twitter adds the retweet button. And now suddenly, the platforms have huge amounts of information about engagement, and people have a tool to spread outrage very, very quickly. Um, These things spread, people surge onto the platforms, and by 2012, the two companies had created an outrage machine, which made it easy for everyone to spread anger. I've been really interested in the biblical story of the Tower of Babel, because I felt that things just got really weird around 2015 in America. In that story, God says, Let us go down and confound their language so that they may not understand one another. I think that's what happened to us between 2009 and 2012. Twitter and Facebook knocked down the Tower of Babel. And ever since then, it's been, I think, impossible to achieve a shared national consensus on anything, a consensus that would last more than a few days or weeks. Even a global pandemic just becomes fuel for our ever-escalating polarization cycle. 
there's a lot more we could add here. There are bad actors exploiting this uh, this outrage machine. The Russians in particular have been trying to divide us for decades, and now we've made it easy for them. Um, but I just want to end uh, uh, by saying that I hope these steps, these uh, five steps here, can explain the face mask anecdote, how we can be so divided even on the use of face masks, and the reason why questions about reopening the economy have become so polarized. Jonathan, thank you. Um, our next speaker is John Burge. He is the Jerry and Carol Levin Distinguished Service Professor of Operations Management at the University of Chicago Booth School. John, please go ahead. Great. Thank you, Larry. I'm going to talk about this paper that uh, was highlighted in New York Times yesterday, and it's basically addressing two issues. <laughs> the first issue was about the modeling of that epidemics and particularly the modeling of the COVID epidemic that we're going through now. And then the second issue is about the economic shutdown mechanism and whether other mechanisms that are targeted in terms of just applying to individual neighborhoods within a given region, um, whether those can be more effective. And basically what the paper shows is that models should include these subpopulations, should include different neighborhoods, um, as well as different susceptibility among parts of the population, and not just lump everyone together the way models have been done in the past, and that by targeting some of these closures, instead of applying it on a very broad, uniform basis, uh, that the same kind of reductions in rates of infection can be achieved for much lower economic cost. Um, basically, the, mo the way this model is built is that it starts out with the common epidemiological model of a susceptible population, infected population, and then a recovered population. Uh, but it, what we do in the model is we add in an exposed population, and then what's particularly relevant for COVID-19 is that the infected population includes both those who are subclinical and uh, do not show um, overt symptoms, or at least are not um, going in for hospitalization, and, and those who actually are clinical and that we might uh, see within the health system. Um, and then it also divides the population up into different regions. And what we did was to apply this for New York City, where we used the zip code tabulation areas for all of the zip codes within New York City and looked at the populations within each of those different areas. Then what we did is we used cell phone data um, that was collected by SafeGraph, and that told us how people were moving about the city. So we saw before the epidemic how people from different neighborhoods, from different zip codes, uh, went about moving through different parts of the city, going to work, or doing other activities. Um, and so we were able to get a graph of how everyone in the city interacts with one another and from which regions they come and where they're going. And then on top of this, what we had was the total employment in each of these different regions. So we had the employment within each of the zip code areas as well. And then what we looked at was, well, what would happen if we were just to shut down employment in individual zip codes and still had a target of not increasing the infections overall? 
how would that differ from a, a policy that just locked down the entire city as uh, was implemented? And what we found is that by targeting, by being able to uh, target individual zip codes as opposed to the entire city, that we could achieve the same goal of not increasing the infections at all and do it at 30 to 40 percent lower overall economic costs. Uh, we also looked at what would happen if uh, we started with, let's say, a second wave of the disease. So what would happen if the disease was starting fresh um, and how would we uh, respond to that? And we could see then which of the areas we would shut down, again, fewer than the entire region, um, and targeted closures would be able to achieve the same result. Uh, so overall, the results show that target closures could achieve the same kind of goals uh, for a, a much lower cost economically in terms of uh, people that are not employed, um, and that uh, it could achieve the same objectives as uh, the policies that, that shut everything down. Um, the results also say that it's very important to consider what goes on in the neighboring regions. For example, if there is no control in New Jersey, it may be impossible for New York to be able to spread or to stop the spread of an infection like uh, COVID-19. Um, and it, it tells us that we should really be modeling subpopulations and not looking at entire uh, populations at a time when we do these kinds of policy analyses. Thank you, Larry. John, thank you. Our next speaker is Ted Conover. Uh, Ted teaches uh, the journalism of empathy at NYU, and he has written multiple books, including New Jack, Guarding Sing Sing, an account of his 10 months spent working as a corrections officer at New York's Sing Sing Prison. Ted, please go ahead. Thanks, Larry. Uh, you asked me about why the Minneapolis officer looks so nonchalant in the, the George Floyd video, uh, and it is striking. Uh, he seemed just uh, quite uh, unagitated, and uh, you wondered if I had any insights into his likely true emotions or thoughts during the killing. Uh, I haven't been a police officer. I've been a corrections officer, but I've thought about these things long and hard, and um, in this case, I had a, uh, a thought. I, as everyone on the call likely knows, uh, often when police use force these days, when they arrest people on the street, passersby bring out their, their cameras, their phones. Uh, the ubiquity of the cameras has led to police feeling under siege, uh, subject to constant scrutiny and second-guessing. To me, the officers involved in first subduing and then murdering George Floyd affected a studied nonchalance for the benefit of passers-by and those who might be holding up their cameras. A nothing-to-see-here pose said, everything is fine, there's nothing to be concerned about. They wanted to mask their real feelings, which was, were probably, this asshole wouldn't go peacefully, so now we're going to show him who's boss. Um, I've been involved in subduing people who did not respond to uh, direct lawful commands in prison, and um, as an officer, occasionally, uh, uh, when you are defied, you become angry, and I, I, th I think that is what we 
we were watching. You've asked me also about uh, the police strategy with demonstrators in terms of control and what, what are police trying to to achieve there. I, I think all sorts of law enforcement jobs are understood in terms of control. Officers hate having their authority questioned. Uh, when George Floyd evidently resisted being placed in the back of the cruiser, apparently he had claustrophobia, uh, their reflex was to subdue him. And you'll notice they... Uh, subdued him on the uh, far side of the vehicle from where passers-by were. The aggression of cops running up against rioters or just demonstrators in the days that followed is fairly unmasked. They're not really in control, and so very visibly they want to intimidate the the opposing side. None of them will likely get killed, but they could definitely get hurt. The context is more gladiatorial and the outcome less certain. You can bet their hearts are pounding. The police use of force is a very fraught realm. We give the police special powers, including the power to arrest and use deadly force. But the contract also says that their powers are limited, and it's in training that these limits are explained. There's a lot of attention in training given to justification of when it's okay to use the powers. Um, just FYI, typical guidance about uh, use of deadly force is it's okay if, he, if the officer reasonably, reasonably believes that it's necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm or in a case of extreme necessity as a last resort. Unfortunately, if rookie officers are involved, as they were here, J. Alexander Kung had only just completed his probationary year, and Derek Chauvin, the policeman with his knee on Floyd's neck, had been his training officer. Thomas Lane had been on the force only three days. This can effectively vest a training officer with 19 years' experience with a special power he shouldn't have, the power to act immune from critique. And last, uh, you asked, is police training um, a success in violence control, a success or a failure, and how can it be improved? Well, I think anyone who's been watching TV or been on the street in a demonstration in recent days uh, knows this is not a success, and there's lots of room for improvement. I attended a corrections academy, not a police academy, but they have a lot in common. The thing about much law enforcement training is it's oversimple. It takes place in a clinical environment, an artificial place where everything's done according to the books, to rules and manuals. Then you leave the academy and enter the real world. For COs, this means a prison, and every prison is different. Each has a superintendent, and each superintendent has a different sort of reputation. As an officer, you've already discussed informally in the academy. Maybe he's a rules guy. Maybe she came up through the ranks. Maybe he has a college degree in criminal justice. But the main thing you learn is, does he stick up for his officers? Or, when things go wrong, are you on your own? In other words, every prison has its own political climate. And in terms of how you act day to day, that matters every bit as much as what you learned in the academy. The political climate tells you how to apply those rules you learned. Similarly, every police department has a climate, influenced in turn by the politicians who, who appointed the chief. You might remember that phrase from New York's 1998 mayoral race. It's Giuliani time. That's what Abner Louima, 
initially claimed that police had told him what, before they violated him with a broom handle in a station house. He later retracted that claim, but it seemed to stick and ring true and became a catchphrase in Ruth Messenger's 1998 race against Rudolph Giuliani. Right now, some might say it's Trump time. The president's not a fan of civil rights activism, nor of journalism. But he is a fan of police power and of, quote, law and order. His election and his pronouncements have created a climate in which, to judge by what we've been seeing over the last week or ten days, police can treat everyone in a protest as the enemy, abusing those they choose with impunity or near impunity. So to ask the excellent question of this conversation, what happens next? Activists want to defund police departments and implement new models of community self-policing. New ideas are desperately needed, as so much is wrong with the current setup. But the criminal justice system is like a freight train or an ocean liner with thousands of stakeholders committed to the status quo. Corrections in New York State, when I worked there, was the state's second largest employer after Verizon. That gives the status quo a huge momentum, an inertia that's hard to overcome. Prison systems cost hundreds of millions of dollars to set up. Police unions are very, very strong. And reform is not a foregone conclusion. Thanks. Ted, that was super. Thank you. Um, our next speaker comes to us exactly from what you're referring to. Uh, Barry Latzer is a professor emeritus in New York's John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He's also the author of The Rise and Fall of Violent Crime in America. Barry, can you please go ahead? Thank you, Larry. I want to address three questions. First, what causes violent demonstrations? Second, can we identify violent demonstrators prior to disturbances? And third, what can we do to prevent riots? First, what causes violent demonstrations? Demonstrations, both peaceful and riotous, are caused by triggering events. Some of these events are the product of false rumors, however. For instance, when the police raided a so-called blind pig, that's a location selling liquor illegally, in Detroit in 1967, there was a rumor of police brutality. This helped touch off a riot that led to the death of 43 people. That rumor was never substantiated. Nonetheless, we would treat it as a triggering event because it was perceived to be so. Riots are more likely to occur in periods of social unrest, such as the late 1960s or early 1970s. Protests are more apt to turn violent when some of the demonstrators are intent on looting, burning, and assaulting police. These may be organizers who plan to engage in violence, or they may be spontaneous rioters. The number of violent demonstrators, which may start out small, frequently grows through a contagion effect. Young people who are especially prone to peer influence copy the violent ones, and the demonstration begins to, the violent demonstration, that is, begins to grow. If the size of the mob grows to a certain point, which we call the tipping point, 
Then it will expand exponentially and the riot will turn massive. Question two, can we identify violent demonstrators prior to disturbances? The answer is sometimes. Since the organizers of violence, such as Antifa, use social media to communicate, law enforcement might be able to identify them through electronic surveillance. Some organizers may even go public to spread their message. They, of course, would be easy to track. Police also may be able to identify leaders of violence during a riot and take pictures of them for future investigation. And finally, the third question, what can we do to prevent riots? Liberal leaders who say the right thing and adopt policies presumably favored by protesters cannot prevent riots. In Detroit in the late 1960s, we had a progressive mayor and a progressive police chief, and it didn't prevent one of the most significant riots in American history. Some rioters will not be satisfied unless there are more radical developments. They won't be satisfied with mere reforms, which they consider to be marginal. Some are actually revolutionaries who want to destroy the social political order altogether. Police can try to work with peaceful protesters to plan locations, numbers, and timing of demonstrations. Police can also adopt effective crowd control measures. These policies usually work when you have peaceful protesters, but not always, of course. Once violence begins, it's difficult to control. The only certain preventative is early and massive threat of force and use of force. This would probably cost lives and would be politically problematic, to say the least, in a democracy where there is a right to protest. Thank you. Thanks, Barry. Um, our next speaker is Jonathan Bean. Jonathan um, is a professor of history at Southern Illinois University. Jonathan. Thank you, Larry. Between 1964 and 1968, 300 riots tore through hundreds of U.S. cities, leaving many small businesses burned to the ground. There are three things listeners ought to know. First, the devastation was breathtaking. Rioters looted over 10,000 small businesses, 2,500 in Detroit alone. Owners lost their businesses, employees their livelihood, and consumers a place to shop. Although the government abandoned small business owners to their fate in the so-called looters' playground, it refused to reimburse them for uninsured losses. The damage was permanent and left these districts ruined for decades. Merchants who tried to rebuild could not get credit, and the Federal Small Business Administration, or the SBA, offered no disaster assistance. City planners delayed permits to rebuild. Insurance costs were prohibitive. Potential workers shied from working in areas that experienced a rolling riot of increased crime that persisted for decades. Consumers, likewise, avoided stores that were boarded up, and they went elsewhere to shop. The once-bustling districts resembled economic ghost towns. Meanwhile, the social justice-minded SBA used the riots to promote race preferences and government contracting. But those businesses were far from the burnt-out riot districts, 
And that form of black capitalism was notoriously ineffective and corrupt. As I detail in my 2001 book, Big Government and Affirmative Action, The Scandalous History of the Small Business Administration. The second thing you want to know, the rioters did not discriminate on the basis of race. Black militants, including Stokely Carmichael, Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, said that, quote, thieving merchants, unquote, had it coming and that their presence was intolerable. The data is clear, however. Rioters looted stores regardless of the store owner's race or reputation. Older white ethnics owned most of the businesses, that's true, but blacks owned 25%, and in Detroit, nearly half the businesses damaged were black-owned. Looters targeted stores with goods that could be easily consumed, liquor, cigarettes, drugs, clothing. They stole from dry cleaning businesses and pawn shops, merchandise owned by black residents, not the owners. A black shopkeeper in Detroit noted that, quote, you were going to get looted no matter what color you were, unquote. Also, there is no evidence that black residents preferred black-owned stores. Surveys found the vast majority of residents had no preference. Jewish shopkeepers, demonized by black radicals, actually had a more favorable view in the black community because of their liberal credit policies. In short, black residents' view of what was going on bore no resemblance to black power rhetoric. The final thing you ought to know, the widely romanticized view of rioters as political dissidents conflicts with what residents and the looters themselves said about their actions. While the majority of blacks thought that the riots were caused by problems faced by all African Americans, lack of good schools, employment discrimination, police brutality, for example, the rioters were a small minority. Their looting and arson was condemned, particularly as riots continued. Blacks surveyed saw looters as, quote, criminals who, quote, steal property, unquote. Detroit blacks thought that rioters were motivated by the chance to get things rather than revenge. Surveys of those arrested found that they too confessed that they were acting upon a desire for material gain. Finally, especially after the horrific 1967 riots, nearly 70% of blacks believed that riots were hurting the cause of civil rights. The last, lasting damage to the neighborhoods made residents and the small businesses the biggest victims. Here I will end with a quote by black scholar and activist Jerry G. Watts shortly after the 1992 L.A. Rodney King riot. He said, quote, rioting is not a democratic act. The arsonists and rioters did not take the pulse of their local communities before setting fire to stores. Had the rioters polled their neighbors, they may have discovered that the majority of the local residents who were not participants in the riots did not want their neighborhood burned down. Thank you. Jonathan, uh, thank you very much. Um, a few weeks ago, Casey Wasserman was was on spoke on our call, and as a favor, he said to me that I could get on the show anybody I wanted in sports, a commissioner, an owner, a player. And he asked me who I wanted, and I said, I want Mike. Our next speaker is Michael Tallon. He is the executive producer of The Last Dance, a documentary on Michael Jordan. Michael, please go ahead. 
Uh, Larry, I think your audience might question your judgment, but um, I'll do my best. Um, I'm going to talk about the last dance and try to address three questions. First of all, why did it take so long, 23 years to be exact, to get the thing made? Um, How was the audience response and how was it impacted by the pandemic? And what about Michael Jordan? What have we learned about him? What should we make of his journey? The great thing about addressing the question of uh, why it took so long is that the key player in the origin story of The Last Dance is also the one who arguably provided the country's strongest, most clear-eyed and decisive leadership at the front end of the pandemic. His name, of course, is Adam Silver. He's the current commissioner of the NBA who shut down the league on March 11th after a positive test on one of his players. Now, back in 1997, Adam was the head of NBA entertainment. The Michael Jordan-led Chicago Bulls had just won five NBA titles in the previous seven seasons. And as they prepared to go for their sixth in eight years, it was apparent there was turmoil in the front office. And for reasons that were made clear in the series, this would be the Bulls' last hurrah, a.k.a. the last dance. Knowing the season would be historic, Adam went to the Bulls' powers that be, namely Michael Jordan, and said, if you let our NBA film crews follow the team all season long, we promise to never air or distribute the footage in any way unless and until you agree to it. So, at the very least, Adam said to Michael, you'll have the greatest home movie collection ever. And that's basically what it was, seemingly forever, because Michael said, no, 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 for 18 years, no, to letting them make a documentary. Then in February 2016, I hatched a plan to unlock this treasure trove of 500 hours of unseen footage. It was in Toronto at NBA All-Star, coldest I've ever been, as I recall, and I sat down with MJ's business partners, Curtis Polk and Esty Portnoy, to pitch them. I knew Michael was reluctant because he didn't want to display his now very well-known, relentlessly demanding behavior toward his teammates. And he didn't think it was worth it for just a one-off documentary, Tree Falling in the Forest. My pitch was, first of all, it would be a 10-part documentary, and it would be a huge event because now the landscape for documentaries had shifted. By this point, four years ago, audiences were binge-watching long-form doc series like How to Make a Murderer, The Jinx, and O.J. Made in America. And I told them over the arc of 10 episodes, audiences would see MJ's competitiveness, his unbridled intensity for what it really was, an attempt to elevate his teammates and an insistence that they push themselves to play with the same fire he had or don't play at all. It took me four months, but finally I got an invite to pitch the man himself. Now it's June 2016, the day before the NBA draft. Curtis and Essie tell me Michael will be in the war room the following day in Charlotte, where he owns the team, preparing for the draft. So I take a red eye from L.A. My, my wife says to me, uh, where are you going, Charlotte? Who are you meeting? Michael Jordan, what time's the meeting? Well, actually, I don't have a meeting scheduled. Wait, you're taking a red eye across the country? You don't have a meeting schedule? Hey, it's Michael Jordan. I'm going. So I show up. I'm getting dressed in the, in the hotel room. I turn on the TV, and there's LeBron James and the Cavaliers parading through the streets of Cleveland with his third NBA trophy. How crazy is that, I think, on the day that I'm seeing Michael? A little touch of irony, maybe? Finally, Curtis and Esty summon me, and I'm ushered into MJ's office. He shakes my hand, he looks me in the eye, smiles warmly. And he takes my presentation, which is what we call a lookbook, starts to read it. But first, MJ puts on his reading glasses. 
whoa, that's that's a reality check. MJ needs reading glasses. All right, well, he's 53. He's human. Good to know. He reads the first page in which I wrote, Michael, every day people come into my office wearing your shoes have never seen you play. It's time. He smiles, seems to like it, going well so far. A little small talk. He leaps through it. He sees the 10-part structure I'd laid out, looks at the previous projects we've done, comments on a film about Alan Iverson, says, I watched that thing three times, made me cry. Love that little guy. And with that, he came from behind the desk, shook my hand and said, I'm in. Let's do it. Okay, so that would qualify as a good meeting. But now everybody wants to know, why did he say yes? Was it LeBron nipping in his heels? Was it the whole debate about who's the GOAT, the greatest of all time? Now, I think, frankly, Michael's above the fray. He's never been bothered by that stuff. He's never lobbied for himself. He leaves the shameless promotion to that other guy on the Lakers. So what then? I just think he felt like it was... It was finally time, as I had suggested. He was finally ready to open up after almost 20 years. It's time to deconstruct the mythology, to set the record straight about who the real MJ is, which, as you saw in the series, he most certainly did. Okay, so why did it touch such a nerve with the American public? Uh, was it because of the pandemic? What, what, what were the factors? Well, <laughs> when people say to us, did it live up to your expectations? Of course, honestly, it sounds like a cliche, but it was truly beyond our wildest dreams. Now, we knew we had MJ and that colorful supporting cast of Pippen, Rodman, Jackson, Kerr. But come on, it's still just a sports doc. Our original le- release date was actually June 2nd, like this week. Can you imagine this series coming out in the midst of the riots and lo- lootings? A little bit scary. But back in mid-March, when our world was first being shut down, there was a clamor, again, ironically led by that guy LeBron, for us to accelerate the production to give starving sports fans something to watch. So we moved it up six weeks, not an easy feat during a pandemic. Thank you, director Jason Hare. And all of a sudden, everybody in America was a sports fan, a basketball fan, an MJ fan. It was a real throwback, very heartening to me to see old school family viewing, two hours at a time, once a week, no binge watching, something to look forward to every weekend and to do together with your family to talk about it. It was a, a virtual water cooler culture that, that grew up, which was kind of established by a, a media frenzy. And eventually we got the unthinkable number of 15 million viewers per episode, crushing every record imaginable and even crushing Tiger King. People thanked us for helping them get through the pandemic, for bringing their families together. It was truly amazing, as I said, beyond their wildest dreams. So about MJ in the final analysis, or at least in the current analysis. What have we learned? What should we make of his incredible journey? Well, Michael Jordan has long been criticized, as The Last Dance points out, for not being an activist, for not taking a stand or being willing to support a cause. We discussed discussed in depth his infamous comment when asked to publicly support a Democratic candidate. He said, Republicans buy sneakers too. So guess what happened this past Friday, just two days ago? Michael and the Jordan brand pledged $100 million over 10 years to organizations dedicated to ensuring racial equality, social justice, and greater access to education. So, Larry, let's, let's end those arguments about who's the GOAT after all. Thank you. Okay. Michael, thank you so much. Um, we're going to start the Q&A session. Michael, uh, you're up. Um, do you, you mentioned that you thought the, um, 
pandemic was important to the essence of it. But what, what I think is interesting is it, it's been a long time since um, the people who watched Michael Jordan play, um, would, this, would this series have worked if it had been released one or two years afterwards, or was it too fresh? And the second part is, my son uh, was born two, uh, four years after this series. Um, he'd heard of Michael Jordan, sort of the same way that I had heard of Will Chamberlain. And yet, he responded to Michael as if he was uh, a living God. What, what is it about Michael that transcends generation and transcends time? To the first question, I think it would have been, as I said earlier, a sleepy little doc that felt like a tree falling in the forest. Um, Michael was the most famous man on the planet for so long, as none other than Oprah said. Um, and so I don't think there would have been this clamor. Um, there's an aura that's been created that's actually grown as we've gotten farther away from his playing days. To some extent, credit to his his gatekeepers for keeping a, a relative level of scarcity. Um, I also don't think he was nearly ready to be as candid, to be as thoughtful, to get as emotional. We saw him almost break down in tears at one point. Um, so I really think he had a sense of when he was ready. That's what the audience came for. Remember, there are a lot of people um, who don't even know when they, when they wear their Jordans that he's a real person. They don't know that Jumpman logo is actually the silhouette of Michael Jordan. So I think actually it was the right time and it was a much greater response. In terms of why the fascination goes so deep, um, you know, back in the day it was want to be like Mike. Um, the Nike commercials were, were part of the pop culture landscape. Um, he had this extraordinary athletic gift coupled with and, and off-the-charts basketball IQ. You know, Barack Obama, who's in the show, very articulate, really kind of a hoops fanatic, says that he grew up worshiping guys like David Thompson and Dr. J in the 70s. Michael was the first guy to have that uh, athletic, endless athletic ability, and having gone to the US, UNC finishing school under Dean Smith, combined it with that mental acuity. Um, I think he has a mindfulness and a presence and ability to perform uh, in the clutch that transcends, that also gives us all those memorable moments. So he is really, truly once in a lifetime, um, maybe once and forever. Well, another thing that the show did was it showed him uh, as a human being with faults. Um, his players disliked him. Um, he he had gambling problems. He had issues all over the place. Um, warts and you expre you showed him warts and all, uh, but I don't think that negatively influenced the viewer's view of him. If anything, showing his faults and his humanity made him a stronger personality. Can you comment on that at all? Yeah, I'm actually surprised by that, Larry. I agree with your interpretation, and I, and I scratch my head a little bit and say. Why are people being so forgiving, accepting, understanding? Um, I think the pandemic has an impact on that. I think we were so desperate for stories. I mean, let's face it, you know, that's what I do for a living. I tell stories. There's no greater attraction than getting Michael Jordan to tell his own personal story and tell it with that honesty and admit, you know, that he was a jerk, that he did punch Steve Kerr in the eye, that he did browbeat the rookie players. Um, but, 
we saw the motivation. That was my pitch about why over the course of 10 hours, you'll really see what's behind that. It's not, it's not about being a bully just, just because he can. It's because he so desperately wanted to win. And, and ultimately, we're so fascinated by greatness, aren't we? By, by single-minded uh, excellence that, that goes above and beyond what we've seen before. And so I, I think people were just salivating for something that they could talk about, something that could be inspired. We heard Nick Saban actually say that he took those two minutes where Michael says, this is the essence of who I am. He took them, clipped them off, and sent them to all of his Alabama players to let them know this is what greatness is all about. My last question for you is, for me, one of the most powerful moments was an interview with Steve Kerr. In the documentary, you mentioned and describe in detail the murder of Steve Kerr's father in Beirut when he was the president of the American University of Beirut, and he was killed by a terrorist. Um, and then you asked Steve Kerr, um, had you ever discussed with Michael um, the loss of your father? Um, were you shocked when they, they said they had not discussed it? Um, a lot of people have commented on that, and others have commented on the fact that after the fight, when Michael wanted to reach out to Steve, he had to call Phil Jackson to get Steve's phone number. Um, I really didn't make much of either. Um, clearly, Michael and Steve were not friends off the court. Um, clearly, when not Michael was not particularly politically aware at the time. Um, and I just feel like there are there are boundaries. Um, you know, Michael uh, right now is very friendly with Tony Kukoc. Um, friendly with, with Scotty, um, who's friendly with BJ. Um, I don't think he and Steve Kerr probably ever had dinner unless it was, you know, part of a team barbecue. I don't think, um, they went deep into each other's personal lives. Um, I think they might now. Um, but I, I, uh, I just think, you know, when you, when you hear Michael Jordan talk about what it took him to be the basketball player that it was, it's such a single minded devotion. Um, and so, you know, that leads to a certain oblivion and a certain lack of consciousness and just kind of what it was. But by the way, um, to your point, Larry, I think Steve Kerr would be an amazing uh, subject for a documentary of his own. Um, as an ending statement to that, um, Steve Kerr was uh, interviewed once about um, the day that Jordan sent the word back, facts back to the Bulls management team, and he was going to play his first game, and Steve Kerr picked up Bushler Jed Bushler to go to the game, and Bushler said to Steve Kerr, do you think they're going to start Jordan? And Kerr said, what do you mean? He goes, well, he hasn't practiced in over a year. Do you think that, you know, Jackson's going to start Jordan? And Steve Kerr said, there's a statue of him in front of the stadium. It's inconceivable. Um, Okay, thank you. I'm going to go back to our other authors. Thank you, Michael. Um, My next question is for Brian Kaplan. Brian, you talked a lot about poverty in the in the globe, um, but you didn't speak or reference specificity with regard to poverty in the United States. How do we distinguish or our resources and our desire to help between those who are impoverished around the world and its immediate and dramatic benefits relative to helping helping poor here in the United States? Well, of course, you know, normal human emotion is to help people that are very visible to you and where they got personal stories. Uh, but 
I'm a big believer in this effective altruism movement that says that you should really put that aside and try to figure out a way to get the biggest bang for your buck. So, of course, you know, the, the harsh reality is that the vast majority of real human poverty is not in the first world, it's in other places. You know, a lot of what I talk about is how much poverty you can solve simply by moving people, by or letting them move from poor countries to rich countries. And that is a highly effective way of getting rid of not only the poverty of the mover, but speak by the magic remittances, getting rid of a lot of poverty back home, too. And how do you feel about that classic Milton Friedman quip that um, we have a choice between unlimited immigration and having a welfare state, but you can't have both? Which one do you want? Do you feel that's a false choice? Uh, I'd say that it is. Um, so I actually have a bunch of pages about this in my last book, Open Borders, where I actually draw me and Milton having a big argument about this. So, I mean, here's the key thing. It's a matter of the numbers. So if you had an extremely generous welfare state, then, it's, then Milton would be right. Because then uh, if you were to go and let in a whole lot of immigrants, then you would really have to cut that back or else you would break the bank. On the other end, if you have a much more modest welfare state, or if it, the welfare state is targeted towards the elderly, as actual ones are, then the numbers can easily come out the other way. So what I actually did in my last book is I went over the best, most boring, dry research on what the net fiscal impact of a typical immigrant is, and then also looked at what happens if you break it down by the skill level of the immigrant, the age of the immigrant, and so on. And at least in the United States, the net fiscal impact of all immigrants seems to be positive except for low-skilled elderly immigrants. Uh, what that means is that if you go and look at all the taxes immigrants pay minus the cost of all the services they use and then do proper discounting by using standard accounting principles and then also come up with estimates of their kids because their kids all go to school, but at the same time, the kids also eventually grow up to pay taxes, then it really looks like Milton is just uh, very wrong or at least greatly overstated for the United States. Uh, again, in terms of which one is actually better, if like you really did have the choice, then yeah, I think that the evidence is very strongly that immigration is just a lot better than the welfare state. And if you ever matter of you have no welfare state, but you're going to have open borders uh, as as uh, in, as a as compensation, then I really don't think that you can credibly make the argument of you're hurting the poor on balance by uh, taking the open border choice. That's actually a great choice, I say. And if you took it to a vote and you asked the elderly in the United States or asked um, even the median voter, um, you have a choice. We can substantially increase immigration and it greatly expands utility as, as an aggregate, um, but it's going to mean less for you. Would they vote for it? Do you think this is explain the popularity of restrictions on immigration starting in the 1920s? Yes. So, so I'd say they definitely would not vote for it. There'd be overwhelming votes against it, but I don't think it's because of selfishness. I think it's because of nationalism. So, you know, the, you know, like my first book, Myth of Rational Voter, I spent a lot of time reading research on how people vote. And the big answer there is people generally have this very little effect of personal interest uh, by any objective measure, but there's an enormous effect of perceived national interest on how people vote. So, you know, like if, for example, with old with pensions and programs for the elderly, if you go and ask young people, first of all, do you think you're ever going to get this stuff? Uh, it's very common for the young to say no. I think the majority of the young say no, no. By the time I'm old, I'll never get it. And then ask them, but do you support these programs? And then you still have very high level support. 
so again, I think it it does largely come down to nationalism and, and not self-interest. But yeah, it's true. That, you know, like what I'm pushing is extremely unpopular, and I do know that. Again, honestly, if it were popular, I would just let somebody else do it or figure the book could all be written. So I, I only take up what I think of as the orphan causes, causes where they have a lot of intrinsic merit, but they're not popular. Brian, thank you. Uh, moving on to oh, Jonathan. My pleasure. I, Thanks a lot. Jonathan, um, in thinking about your comments about the role of social media and how it exaggerates uh, polarization, um, you know, it's true we uh, conservatives and liberals come to a problem with a different set of utility functions and different set of beliefs. But, um, and you, you're hoping that maybe that there's some group of politicians that could bring them together if possible. How do you how do you suggest dealing or talking to people who have different utility functions and beliefs to cooperate and, and believe in this, the same objective or concept? Well, as, as a social psychologist, I think that social forces tend to swamp most other things. So economists might look at people as having utility functions, and economists have done a great job of incorporating cognitive psychology in, into their work, um, and uh, you know Dan Kahneman's work, Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, but I think the next frontier for, for economists is to incorporate social psychology. Um, and actually, Brian gave us just an example of this a moment ago, where he said that really it's not that people are being selfish in their voting, it's that they really care about the nation as they perceive it, they care about their groups. So I don't think it's really a question of the different utility functions. I think it's more a question of, uh, you know, who are we? Um, who are the bad guys? What is the narrative that we believe? And um, leadership has always been about helping to create that narrative, telling a story of us. And it, it, it used to be more more possible to tell a national story to motivate people, to bring people onto the same the same page, the same team, the same mission. I see that splintering. I think anybody leading an organization at any level nowadays, whether it's a company, a school, um, uh, or a country, finds it just much harder. Uh, there's uh, Social media makes it possible for various other stories to get told um, uh, that can spread very, very quickly. So I think we are in for a time of moral incoherence, chaos, uh, confusion, and it's very difficult to have a shared sense of who we are and, and what our norms are. Um, you mentioned if it, Robert Kurzban was on the call, uh, I don't know if it was the first or second call, and he highlighted that um, if you wear a, this was right at the beginning of the uh, pandemic, he said, you know, right now if your wife goes into the grocery store and she's wearing a mask, she's persona non grata, he said in a few weeks it will uh, reverse so that when you don't wear a mask, it'll be persona non grata. And then each will be uh, wrapped around moral judgments. Um, do you see um, that now going to go in reverse? That, well, I think, um, yeah, I think, I think Rob was exactly right that it's a group thing. And uh, yeah, I was on that call and I actually remember, you know, I live in New York City and I remember um, going on the subway in I, the late February, early March, trying to decide, should I wear my mask? But nobody else was. So I felt I, I felt foolish doing it. But that was just an individual level. I think what's what's happened since then 
um, is that wearing a mask has been a sign of that you're a good citizen, you're 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 following the proper rules, um, and in many areas of the country, it is you know everyone's doing that. Um, but in some areas, a different story has been told, in which you are a sheep, you are a conformist, you believe this conspiracy theory. Um, I watched that uh, that short version of the video, Plandemic, which weaves a, an absurd story, but it seems believable if you just listen to the story and don't know other other things. Um, so I think that's a pandemic and other things is an example of how anything such as wearing a mask can be turned into a powerful moral signal um, of your of your badness or your stupidity. Uh, so, I, you know, it's just a nice example of the power of social forces. And when I originally invited you to speak on this call, um, I asked you the question, can you please speak about why conservatives want to open up the economy and liberals want to close it? But since then, we've had all the, you know, a number of riots and social disorder. If I had asked the question differently and said, why do conservatives are opposed to riots and liberals have some support for it, would that have been true? And uh, why, for example, would one group support rioting and another not? Or does no well, one okay. support rioting? Yeah. Well, okay. So first, uh, just in the abstract, if you don't know what the riot is about and you just say, uh, you know, who would support people using aggressive tactics or even some property crime to advance a political cause, um, I could simply say, well, in general, um, I mean, my own research on moral foundations, on on the different uh, sort of uh, taste buds of the moral sense, um, uh, show that in many countries, uh, if you're attracted to the if you're attracted to the left, to left wing or progressive causes, you care a lot about compassion and equality, and you don't care that much about tradition and order. Whereas people who are attracted to more right wing parties and and causes tend to care a lot more about um, order, tradition, people doing their duty, um, uh, and so there is that general there is that general left-right difference which you find across centuries uh, and, and and across countries, and and so generally speaking, the left is going to be more sympathetic. Now, of course, it, what's going to swamp that is what's the rioting for, and if it's for a cause that is embraced by the left, such as you know, civil rights. Uh, 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 racial justice, uh, well, then, you know, people are going to use motivated reasoning to even more strongly justify um, uh, uh, even, uh, you know, not just, well, obviously protests are fine, but even uh, uh, property crime. Whereas if it was for another cause, I mean, I don't know if there were Tea Party riots, but if it was, you know, if there's a, if there was a, a riot for a right-wing cause, well, all of a sudden, we would see conservatives finding justifications for it. Um, so, you know, in general, team dynamics are going to swamp the, the, the left-right differences in psychology. Thank you, John. Um, I'd like to go to Kate Cagney next. Kate, um, you mentioned that comorbidity may not be as good of a explanatory variable as race or, uh, or age or loneliness. Um, and I'm wondering... As a counterexample, we had a significant breakout in the Orthodox Jewish community. This mm-hmm. is a community that I don't believe is lonely, uh, and I don't believe is necessarily particularly poor. How would you uh, think about mortality in the Orthodox Jewish community? It's an interesting question. I, uh, what I was really trying to signal more was that, um, you know, it was location itself which created the risk. So the places people traverse, where they go, rather than through the pre-existing conditions that they had. And I would imagine, at least in the instances I know in the Orthodox Jewish community, 
you know, in some ways it was likely kind of a downside of connectedness, right? That those came from some funeral circumstances, at least the spread, right? A wedding, other things that brought people in close social space. And if I understand it correctly, the timing was such that I think we weren't fully aware of the strength of contagion. I think, um, you know, location brings risk and sometimes that location um, is deleterious to your health. And the examples you give, there are actually things that are health enhancing in most circumstances, but facilitated spread just because of right, close connections to other people. Did that get at what you were thinking? You yeah. opened your conversation talking about the value of social networks. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. We know from other studies that those individuals who have strong social networks tend to live longer. Um, we know that when um, the wife dies, um, mm-hmm. men die soon thereafter because they're supposedly, we think, because their social networks are, are dependent upon the wife. But when mm-hmm. the husband dies, the wife lives just as long uh, as if the husband had lived or died. I think that's human. Mm-hmm. But it reflects... Um, the importance of social networks. But even among women, uh, those women with better social networks, uh, even without a spouse, tend to live much longer than those without. So what is it particularly about social networks that extends life and um, makes life worth more living? Well, there are, there are a number of different theories about why that matters. So one is just, um, you know, the extent to which you feel valued by others, you bring value to others. Another is really a biological mechanism, that there's something about touch itself. There's something about um, the extent to which your cortisol levels, right, are regulated by being in close social contact with others. And then there's also the notion that, uh, you know, being in what we would consider pro-social circumstances dampens a desire to engage in riskier behavior. So you probably drink a little less, you might smoke a little less. There are other things that, you know, we might characterize as self-medicating, right, that that your um, a, a social network that cares about you might give you a nod if you were engaging in that way, right, that would, it would sort of rely on aspects of, as sociologists describe it, informal social control to make certain that you are engaging in, in behavior that's health enhancing. Those are just a few theories. I think, I mean, one of the things that, that's so fascinating about the relationship between social networks and health is that we do often think about, okay, you know, in the, in the circumstance you raised about um, a, a wife and a husband that, um, you know, somebody is around not only to kind of monitor your behavior informally, but to make sure you get to the doctor, to make sure you do it regularly, to really sort of be watchful for you in that way. And that's one story um, to add to the other ones that you mentioned about, you know, why husbands die more quickly after the departure of their wives. Okay, moving on uh, to Barry Eichengreen. Uh, Barry, you talked a little bit about um, the benefits of having very, very low interest rates to uh, bring down um, the debt-to-GDP ratio. Currently, we have, in real rate terms, you know, we're, we're at negative interest rates across, you know, in real terms, across the yield curve. Um, do you think that will last? Do you think it's temporary as it relates to um, Fed behavior? Uh, because if real interest rates do jump, does this 
uh, debt to GDP ratio become unsustainable? So I think about um, real interest rates as being determined by the uh, the balance of savings and investment. The real interest rate has to rise or fall depending on whether investment is strong, high relative to savings, or low relative to savings. I think less about the role of the uh, the Fed in this context than many people do, maybe than you do, Larry. At the moment, it's clear that um, savings rates are at unprecedented heights in the United States, that investment is weak because of financial distress and uncertainty going forward. I think this situation will persist for an extended period, that people are going to continue to engage in precautionary savings because they have been awakened to the fact that they didn't have enough money in the bank. Firms are going to be uncertain about the economic landscape for uh, until the virus is history. So uh, I I don't see the current situation of low interest rates changing anytime soon. When, or, or, or maybe I should say if and when, spending recovers, then all that will begin to change. And then we're going to have to worry about more about rising interest rates, rising inflation, rising problems of debt sustainability. In your paper that um, I assigned, uh, you gave me on public debt through the ages, you mentioned that um, immigration and population growth is a very important variable uh, to basically grow out of the debt overhang. Um, In the 19th century, we had large-scale immigration. At the end of the World War II, we had a baby boom, and we also had a substantial increase in uh, long-term productivity. How do you see um, birth rate, immigration, and productivity as the saviors for the problem? Well, I, um, I, I, I worry about the demographic headwinds that in the United States and uh, virtually every other advanced economy populations are aging, which will make for slower growth, other things equal, that uh, productivity growth has been limp since about uh, 2005, and hopes that uh, new technologies would transform that have been disappointed uh, up until now. I I look at the history of uh, the late 19th century when immigration did play an important role in the growth of the U.S. economy and the elimination of the debt overhang that the Union government emerged from, from the Civil War with. But um, I'm I'm strongly of the view that um, there is not going to be a more favorable climate toward immigration until the uh, concerns that that working class people have about uh, stagnant wages and inequality and, and above all economic insecurity that they that that translate into concerns about immigration and antagonism to foreigners and allow politicians to channel their insecurity in that way until those um, problems are addressed. Oh, I'm sorry. I guess I had myself on mute. I'll try that again. Um, John, my my question is for John Burge. John, um, you talk about targeted closures. Uh, I'm worried about the political problems associated uh, with how to do a targeted closure. You talk about hubs and where our most productive citizens work. Um, we'd want to try to keep open at all costs. But there are political implications of that. 
Um, what we're going to try to do is effectively close where our lower working class workers uh, work to allow our upper class workers to continue to work. Does that seem politically feasible in environments like this? John, I, I, did you put yourself on mute as well? Yeah, yeah now I'm on. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I get it. I had the same problem. I'm sorry, I didn't hear your question, though. Oh, I'm sorry, John Birch. It's, um, we have uh, political uh, problems, potentially, with targeting hubs um, to open and to close lower working class communities. Um, do you think it, it, politically it's feasible to take advantage of our most productive employees, our upper class employees, to continue to work while we close down lower class, uh, lower working class people who are less productive? Yeah, I, I think in our paper, uh, you, you were opening hubs because that's where there was a lot of employment. Um, so, and it's employment that's coming from other areas. So, it's not that people in Midtown um, are being protected. Uh, it's that businesses in Midtown who employ people from all over New York City are or should be open so that those people can uh, maintain their livelihoods um so it's it's really not uh targeted uh to protect people in so-called hubs um it's to protect as many jobs as possible and those people live in different parts of the city um, at the same time, if, if you live in a neighborhood where there's a lot of activity within that neighborhood, um, and that might be in a remote location, but there aren't very many people who come in from outside that neighborhood, I mean, you would want to keep that open as well. Um, so it's, it's really not uh, targeted against, um, let's say, um, the areas that have the uh, let's say the, the wealthiest people, um, but it's the areas that employ the most people um, and that the, that would benefit the most people who would be um, affected by um, any kind of shutdown. And are you worried about, as you said, you're going to try to get people from all over the, the MSA. Um, so I imagine like in a Chicago situation, I imagine you're going to try to keep the loop open. Is that a, a fair assessment? But if it is, and then everybody goes back into all these other communities, you know, northern Indiana, the south side, west Chicago, Naperville, uh, northern suburbs. Doesn't that effectively have a greater spread? Uh, but their interactions, if, if they come to the loop uh, and their interaction in the loop is only during uh, the business time, and then they go back to those neighborhoods, then that's giving them less time actually to spread the disease within their own neighborhood. Um, it somewhat diffuses the interactions that they have. In other words, they're not just intensively um, interacting with people within their neighborhood, which will lead to greater spread of the disease, um, but they're interacting with a wider range of people, um, and that slows down the, the rate at which the disease actually is, is transmitted. Okay, thank you. Um, my next question is for John James. Uh, my first question is, um, you know, you talked about how George Floyd um, really shocked shocked you in terms of how you would discuss this with your kids and how a few bad police actors are problematic. 
But in your experience in the U.S. military, I'm sure that there were also bad actors in the military. But you know, our, the average soldier is a very good soldier, just like the average cop is a very good cop. Um, but what do we do about the bad soldier, the one who may kill a civilian or do unknown what damage? Um, how do you rec- reconcile the, the bad soldier with the bad cop, and how would you distinguish between uh, what we should do about it and its implications as an example for your children and for society at large? So there's uh, there's been a, a little bit of talk around uh, social pressure and um, and persona non grata, not one of being not wanting to be associated with the uh, the wrong thing. And one thing I'd like to go back to uh, with with uh, cops and such and how we dealt with it in the military. Um, there are some on this call who may remember uh, Lieutenant uh, Kelly, uh, a Vietnam uh, lieutenant uh, who. Uh, allowed his unit to torch, um, um, rape, kill, uh, execute a bunch of atrocities in Vietnam on a village called My Lai. Uh, that uh, was so egregious that it shook uh, the uh, uh, the consciousness of uh, of of the uh, of the world. Um, these are American soldiers, uh, most of whom have been drafted. Uh, there were there were issues with a few bad soldiers, um, and a couple things happened out of this. One, um, and and the biggest and most pervasive thing, um, is it tainted all Vietnam veterans. Uh, we live in a time now, and I'm, I'm hearing a little while ago about uh, folks who are wearing uh, Air Jordans and, and may not have ever seen Michael play. Um, we recognize after the war on terror, or during the war on terror, forgive me, um, we say thank you for your service to soldiers. But there was a time that soldiers got spit on as the result of uh, the, the massive swing uh, against uh, what uh, uh, some, some of these uh, atrocities that happened. Every Vietnam soldier was associated with this. We've seen this before, and that was wrong. And right now, we have good police who are being treated like Vietnam vets, who are being put in impossible situations, who understand uh, that while they have uh, a duty um, to protect folks who may not like them and may just as soon see them dead, um, that they are put into precarious situations and uh, with the, uh, the lack of training, or as uh, uh, Commerce, Congresswoman Dennings put, uh, you get what you pay for. We have police officers um, who, uh, due to budget cuts, have lost pensions, have lost training, have lost uh, 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 folks who have years on the force. I, I have friends uh, who've left the force uh, because they quite simply couldn't afford it. So uh, some of the parallels that, that I, I try to use in my own uh, training, uh, being a military officer, understanding um, that when someone ceases to become a combatant, even if they had just been shooting at you the moment before, once, the, once they have been neutralized, then it is your duty it is your duty to take care of them. Now, I got some of the best training at West Point and in Ranger School, and I believe that those who, whom we have asked uh, to protect us deserve um, the same level of training, uh, uh, high standard of training, excuse me, um, to, uh, to make sure that they can keep us safe, not, not cutting uh, funding to law enforcement officers, but I would say in many cases increasing it. Uh, and then the, the first thing, um, refusing to accept uh, atrocities like happened in Milai uh, and what happened in Minneapolis and recognizing and acknowledging as a people that we are better than this. 
and it is okay to expect better than this. And the fact that this has been going on for 400 years is something that, uh, that we have to look at, um, take an honest look, and, uh, and ask ourselves um, who is in the best position um, to begin to take care of this. Um, I, for one, uh, believe uh, an African-American male um, who, uh, who's been put in situations like this before uh, with firsthand experience in it, uh, and, and someone who's been in combat, who understands uh, the the uh, making life and death decisions in a split second through the fog of war, uh, recognizing how badly we need our police officers, but also that uh, uh, what it feels like to be pulled over on a routine traffic stop and feel like I'm going to lose my life that night. So uh, I, I think that um, uh, history shows us the path, uh, and I, I think that uh, by uh, learning from the lessons of our past, and then putting um, leaders who are uh, willing and committed to address the root causes of these issues with a future focus, identify the real enemy, which is not police officers, but, uh, uh, and, but also uh, uh, recognizing the common purpose of, uh, of increasing the, uh, the underlying issues, uh, which leads to, uh, to, to, to racism and socioeconomic uh, inequality and immobility. And you know, you're running for Senate. Uh, in the state of Michigan as a Republican, what, um, how do these issues, um, the rioting, the quarantine, police behavior, uh, what, where is their disagreement and what are going to be the hot points uh, in the campaign as it relates to these subjects? I think the biggest thing is going to be, all right, we've heard your BS uh, political talking points for the last um, 5, 10, 15, 20, 100 years, what are you going to do? What are you going to do to change this now? Uh, I think that America is reason, uh, is, uh, is, is, uh, is necessarily and, uh, is, um, uh, understandably hot and emotional right now, uh, raw. Um, uh, but I do believe that the time was coming very quickly, um, uh, where people are going to say that righteous indignation has not fixed this up until this point. Righteous influence will. I don't want to hear about your emotions. I want to hear about your economic plan and strategy. I want to know that you have the experience to deliver for me because I've heard the, the politics come and go. And so that, that's what I'm focusing on is, is getting people the message and the truth. Uh, my experience as a combat leader understanding how to keep Americans safe because I've done it before. My experience uh, understanding uh, uh, what it takes uh, uh, to, to grow uh, a business and take care of my employees, keeping them on their health care insurance at a company that's headquartered in Detroit in the automotive industry. Uh, when I came back uh, in a state that was pulling out of a recession in a city that, that went bankrupt in an industry that needed a bailout, uh, those are experiences uh, and, uh, and, and firsthand experience that we're going to need um, uh, helping us move forward. And also, in each aspect of my adult life, whether it's in the military or in business, um, uh, politics was an afterthought. A partisanship is what got us into this mess in the first place, and partisanship sure isn't going to get us out. So uh, I'm um, personally just I, – I'm, I'm, I, I hate politics, but I love this country, and uh, I, I believe that most people um, are, are sick of the bullcrap. Um, I'm – and uh, I think that if we can let folks know that we are going to address um, perhaps the uh, the toughest situation that we've faced uh, in, in in generations, 
coming out of a global pandemic, race riots, and then emerging from uh, an impending uh, economic downturn, uh, we're going to need uh, true tested leadership that not only has compassion but wisdom. Um, true tested leadership that understands uh, mission first, people always, uh, being able to walk and chew gum at the same time, not being able to pick whether or not you pay your employees or satisfy your customers or whether you satisfy the mission or bring all your men home, you have to do both. Uh, so uh, these are the types of things that I think will really resonate with folks. I think people are going to be ready to make um, uh, decisions to support folks who will bring about um, uh, positive, sustainable, uh, inclusive uh, uh, long-term change, and, and, and they're they're not going to have very much of an appetite for the political talking points. John, thank you very much. Uh, Barry Latzer, you've heard um, discussions about training um, as being a critical variable uh, to the success of the police. Um, the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, I imagine, has a tremendous amount of focus on how to train so that these sort of incidents um, don't happen. Um, what, where in, in that school is that going on? Um, why has it failed, and, and what can we do better? I'm not sure where it's going on. I retired five years ago, so we didn't do that much training. Of course, there's a police academy in New York, and the police all must go to the academy. We tried to provide the police with a liberal arts education, but there were specialized programs to uh, provide training for police. Uh, I, I really don't know how successful or, or uh, unsuccessful uh, they've been. And we saw, at least, um, I'm in Chicago, uh, and I watch more particular focus on the Chicago news. We noticed that law enforcement sort of stepped aside at the, and let the looters and rioters go at will. Um, into and raid the Michigan Avenue stores, um, all the retail establishments in the loop, and then it spread massively across the city. Um, when, as you described it, we passed that tipping point, um, is there anything you can do other than step aside, or do you do more harm than good by firing in the tear gas? What, um, what, do you, what, are, what is the right thing to do in a circumstance like that? Well, only the use of force at that point uh, would be effective, but you'd have loss of life. You'd have uh, deaths and, uh, and injuries uh, if you did it. So I guess the police in Chicago made a decision that it wasn't worth the candle. They'd rather let the property be destroyed. Of course, this encourages even more destruction of property and, in fact, other violent acts against individuals. So this is a very tough call to make, it seems to me, but you can understand the call since uh, shooting the looters uh, is uh, going to be a problem in and of itself. Of course, it would stop the looting, but at what price? Understood. Um, and can you just maybe just explain in just a little bit more detail um, how that process goes from being a good protester to a looter in the context of uh, the mass the mass of a crowd. Um, I assume that they went there not to loot, and then opportunity arose. Um, we're being told that there were some bad actors in the, in, a, in the group. Is that the reality, or is it that um, any actor would behave, or certain people would act in, in this given opportunity of well, where you have young people involved, let's say people in their 20s or late teens, there you have this imitative behavior. 
this peer influence. So once some loot, others are tempted to, to join them, and that's a big uh, part of the problem. Of course, those who go there intending to behave badly uh, will behave badly, and, and they can encourage others to uh, join them. And organizers who have malign intent uh, can purposely uh, uh, cause uh, uh, looting and vandalizing and burning, etc. So it really depends. But if they're, let's say, going with an intent to, to protest and, and have a political uh, a protest in mind, and then they see people looting, uh, they might well uh, join in. So at that point, they'll have turned from a peaceful protester to uh, to violent, uh, lawless uh, behavior. Um, uh, nothing much that I know of can be done about this unless the police can, can find them, move them on, box them in, or use tear gas against them to, to neutralize them. But... Uh, uh, otherwise, uh, there's always the risk, it seems to me, in any demonstration of it uh, lapsing into violent behavior. And why does um, why does the looting over a number of days continue to escalate and then de-escalate? Why does it seem like a natural progression across all these cities, both now and, and in the 1960s? Why, why is there this release and then return to, I'll call it, more normal behavior. Yeah, I guess the, uh, the, the, the rage shows itself first. The anger shows itself first, and the tendency to behave really badly comes out uh, initially. After a while, I suppose, you sort of get it out of your system, and it starts to, to dissipate uh, a, a bit. But I agree that there does seem to be a sort of progression of things. Uh, moving from maybe not so bad at first, just gathering, then moving to looting and burning and other bad behavior, and then repetition of that behavior over several days, and then finally a, a dissipation of that uh, a bad behavior. That seems to be the uh, pattern that takes place, and as you said, that's what happened in the late 60s as well. Uh, Jonathan Bean, um Last but not least, coming back to you, why? Um, wh what do you think is, given the historical situation, where in the 1960s uh, the African Americans burned down their own communities and then they were not rebuilt? Um, what lessons do we have to learn from that, uh, in terms of what, what's going to happen next here? Do, do we see that? Would you expect to see the same patterns? Or what was in particular was problematic? If we wanted to solve this problem in terms of uh, rejuvenating those neighborhoods after maybe they've been destroyed, what, what could we do to make it um, a better outcome? Well, you know, you know, part of the aftermath of the 1960s riots was that there was certainly a, a sullen resentment between the, those merchants that were they're still in business and the residents. Um, they didn't know who was antagonistic towards them and who wasn't. Um, you know, the federal government could certainly do a lot more, the Small Business Administration, in terms of reimbursement of uninsured losses. This was a real problem after 1992 with the Rodney King riots. Um, not only were there so many businesses destroyed, of course, their workers lost, I think there were 5,000 jobs lost uh, in the course of that riot. 
Um, one thing that we've seen that's really quite radical in the past year is that the SBA has been used as a funnel for nearly a trillion dollars um, in, a, in a way that it, it never has been used in that capacity for disaster lending um, in its 50 or 60 year history. Um, it's got a long history of um, responding in terms of economic injury loans after 9-11, for example. Uh, businesses that were affected, not only in New York City, um, could get economic injury loans. Um, now we have on the table uh, loans that can be forgiven. You know, the big question is going to be um, you know, how, how, how difficult is it going to be for these businesses to, to provide documentation, or is the SBA going to um, relax, that, relax that as well? But you know, a follow-up to the riots is that it's, it's been fairly well documented that uh, the riots of the 1960s contributed to a persistent increase in crime. They also increased the um, declining value of black residents' property, um, which had been rising and then, then fell. Um, so we hope that we don't see that. Um, liberal solutions of more social spending, conservative solutions of law and order, um, battled each other from the 60s to the 90s. Um, but I think it was Fred Singer who wrote a, a wonderful book in the, in the 90s called The Future Once Happened Here about the cities. And um, his argument um, was, and, and I think he was right, that um, you know, the crime has to be, crime has to um, be reduced uh, in places like 125th Street and, and Harlem Business District um, and until crime is brought under control, which in recent decades it has been, um, that's going to be a lingering issue. You know, whether we see um, policing and city policies towards police um, contribute to an increase in crime is, is something that, that I would worry about. So we could see a more generous federal, federal response with these business owners in particular, um, and we need to watch out for what happens with crime. Okay. Well, that ends it. Uh, thank you so much. I'd like to thank my speakers for their participation and listeners for listening in. Thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. You goodbye, and, and you may disconnect now. Thank you.